0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the first full episode of BOLD, a bouldering podcast. In today's episode, I'll be talking on a few subjects to try and define what bouldering is. I'll start off with a short history of bouldering, touching on its humble beginnings in the forest of Fontainebleau, up to its boom in popularity in the 90s. Now after that, I'll go on and try to form a simple and usable definition for bouldering, so you'll know what to answer when relatives start asking about your athletic endeavors. Further on, I'll touch on different types of bouldering. You could call them subsets, such as dino, slab, crack, and highball roots. Now what is the difference between these subsets? Which subset fits best for your body type? And when does high highballing become free soloing? I'll also address the elephant in the room. Indoor bouldering and its relation to outdoor bouldering. Can we use the same grading system? And what are some of the advantages to climbing indoor instead of outdoors? Now, this might seem like a boring subject to begin with, compared to the next episode on skincare, or future ones on active recovery, mental motivation, and peak power performance. But I find it necessary, especially for beginners in bouldering, to understand what it's all about and where it came from. A short history of bouldering. It's pretty amazing that we can trace back bouldering to its original roots in Fontainebleau. To start our story, we need to go back twenty-three million years. Back then, the boulder gardens in Font were being formed. Now what we climb today are erosive remnants of the Oligocene, a geologic epoch of the Paleogene period, back when animals like the Quercy cat were still around, a giant 300 kilogram or 700 pound cat, also called the fake saber tooth tiger, and these roamed in between the boulders. Now these boulders waited for a long time when finally in 1874 the Club Alpin Francais was founded. And this group of alpinists, when hiking in the forest, discovered the magic of these sandstone boulders, and so it began. At first, The boulders only served as a preparation and practice for future alpine expeditions in the Alps. Until in 1910, Jacques Veralin started the Groupe Rochassier. These climbers, they didn't just see the boulders as practice for alpinism, but they also saw the unique potential for a separate discipline. Jacques Veralin himself had this to say in 1913. Certainly, these are not high pinnacles, The highest boulder does not exceed 15 meters, but the sandstone is quite smooth, and the holds are rare. Nowhere else could one better learn how to climb than here. With the help of microscopic roughness, infinitely small ledges, and chimneys that would make the most hardened chimney sweep, rejoice. Now after World War One, another group was formed. You're probably starting to see a trend here. The French do like starting groups and teams. This one is called Le Groupe de Haute-Montagne and one of its members, the world-famous Pierre Alain. Alain climbed the first 5 Plus or V2 in 1934 called L'Angle Alain, which has since been upscaled to 6A or V3. He also invented the soft-soled climbing shoe in 1935 and went on to better that design in 1948. Sticky rubber was actually only introduced in Spain in the 1970s. Pierre Alain wrote this about bouldering in his 1947 book, Alpinisme et Compétition. On these small rocks, quite close to the ground, we can let ourselves go and, dare I say, outstrip the limits of our potential. The falls are of no consequence. If need be, we can try a given hard start 20 times in a row, learning thereby, with exactitude, the friction limits between rock and rubber. We can detect precise balance, trust incredibly small holds, and in this way acquire the qualities of a climber that are superior to those given by any other major rock climbing school. On the other side of the world, in the USA, another legend was at work. John Gill, also known as the master of rock or the godfather of modern bouldering. He almost single-handedly put bouldering on a map in the States. Gill's background in gymnastics shaped his style and consequently the direction that bouldering would take in the coming years. John's also the first to pull off a one arm front lever. Now, next time you're around a pull up bar, give that a try. If you're looking for some motivation, check out the book John Gill, Master of Rock. Now, Gill had this to say on the beginnings of bouldering. The distinction between top roping and bouldering was vague and casual then. And the common descriptor was uh, practice climbing. And for the few of us who took bouldering a bit more seriously, the world was fresh and new with exciting opportunities for exploration. And my unique perspective of bouldering and rock climbing as an extension of formal gymnastics emphasized fluid and graceful performance as well as pure difficulty. Furthermore, throughout my career as a climber, I practiced bouldering as a form of moving meditation. Now Gill's feats and commitment to the sport pushed bouldering into the mainstream climber's life and created this amazing new discipline. And throughout the 80s and 90s, bouldering grew in popularity as professional climbers started taking up the discipline and indoor gyms started opening up worldwide. And this is where we'll leave you today on the history of bouldering. If you'd like a more in-depth episode on bouldering in Fontainebleau or perhaps an episode on John Gill, feel free to leave me a message on Instagram, at boldbouldering. Let's try and define bouldering, shall we? The fact that bouldering wasn't seen as significant because of its literal scale, small boulders compared to big walls and mountains, points in the direction that the size of the object climbed matters. Jacques Vérin in 1913 talked about boulders up to 15 meters or 50 feet. So let's take that number and use it as a maximum height that a bouldering route can have with exception to literal giant boulders that have roots up to 20 meters, around 60 feet, or higher, such as too big to flail, a route opened in Buttermilk's Bishop, USA. Now it's tempting to use the word climbing in the definition of bouldering. This implies an upward motion and the reaching of a top, but in bouldering we have roots that stay low to the ground and never rise up, such as large horizontal roofs, and low to the ground traverses. So I'll describe the act itself as moving on a vertical surface. We can't talk about boulders or rock, and have to use the term vertical surface. Why? Because bouldering gyms exist, and the new discipline of bouldering has climbers scaling concrete bridges and brick buildings. So for bouldering, any vertical surface will do. Rock, plastic, wood, or any other material. But what about those uh, large horizontal roofs I was talking about earlier? Than our vertical surfaces. Well, damn it, we'll just use surface then. Let's take another route to our definition. What stays the same in bouldering despite the difference in the object climb, be it vertical, horizontal, rock, or plastic? It's gravity. In essence, a boulderer is always fighting gravity, be it on a low traverse in font or a high ball in bishop. This fighting gravity doesn't ever result in defeat on gravity's side. And even when we win, we still fight gravity on the down climb, and until the day we die. Even the boulder we curse when we can't see to the climate has been feeling gravity for over millions of years. We're all in the same boat. Furthermore, bouldering is done without a rope or harness attached to the boulderer. This lack of security creates freedom of movement and a possibility to fully immerse in one's own movement. Of course, boulders use crash pads these days, but the distinction between a pad and a harness is that the pad only touches the climber at the end of his fall. All right, enough thinking around. Let's try and formulate a definition. What about this? Bouldering is the act of moving on a surface of maximum 15 meters, with the exception to naturally big boulders, in a gravity-defying way without any security except for... The landing pad. Still vague, isn't it? It's hard to come up with a definition that describes bouldering, since it has a large amount of subsets and innovation that is yet to come, such as bouldering. Definitions, in my opinion, limit the subject to its current described state. Let's leave bouldering as is. That way, we leave room for improvement and evolution. Let's move on. And dive deeper into these different subsets that make bouldering so hard to define. Let's start off with slab climbing. This refers to walls between 70 and 85 degrees steep that usually have very few and small holds. Balance and friction are consequently the two biggest factors in slab. Staying focused and calm is a must and an intuitive feel for weight distribution comes in handy. Slab climbing requires a lot of technique but can be height-dependent. This is because of the distance between the very few holds available. Since you're standing on your feet and not really hanging on your shoulders as on overhangs, slab might be a good fit for the thinner and taller boulderers that prefer technical footwork and laser-like focus. Now if you're slab climbing, make sure your shoes are spotless. A good thing to do is licking your palm and rubbing the tip of your shoe until it's squeaky clean. Cool the temperatures and shadow are also recommended for a better slab experience. And now for crack climbing. This is but a smaller subset in bouldering and it isn't as widely available. A lot of European climbers, for example, have no experience whatsoever with crack climbing. This discipline sometimes requires rigorous taping of the hands and doesn't rely on finger strength itself. Most of the friction with the rock is created by twisting the hands and or feet as to lock them in place. I wouldn't say any type of body is better for crack climbing, but a leathery skin, a strong mindset, and big hands might come in handy. Let's move on to dinos. Now, I'm not talking about the dynamic movement called a dyno, but about boulder routes that consist of just one dynamic move. A well-known example of this is the 8A V11 dyno called Rainbow Rocket in Fontainebleau. Now, these routes are characterized by its simplicity and explosiveness, finger strength and proper footwork generally don't matter as much here, and because of that, these types of routes are looked down upon, with some claiming the routes do not be bouldering or climbing, but jumping, and even suggesting downgrading the routes. Now in my opinion, dino routes are on the extreme end of bouldering subsets. They are the embodiment of dynamic movement and require a totally different skill set compared to slab climbing, which many see as an opposite. As such, I think it requires its own category and grading. An 8A V11 boulder route is something completely different to a similarly graded dino route. Being tall surely helps in doing dynos, but also has its drawbacks, since explosivity is crucial. And most important is strong feet and strong legs. When dinoing, you want to resemble a metal spring, creating momentum from the ground up. Patience is also important. Take it from a guy who took 3 hours and 33 tries to top Rainbow Rocket. So best body type for these kinds of routes? Tall with strong legs for launch and strong shoulders and biceps for catching that top hold. Let's cover highballing. We've already touched on this subject a bit in the definition of bouldering but let's touch on it here again. High balls offer different challenges to other subsets of bouldering. The route incorporates a lot more moves and acquires great confidence in one's own ability. We can talk about a highball when the route reaches a height of 5 meters or 15 feet, and highballs can go up to 20 meters or 60 feet. Developing skill in resting can be important on these taller highball routes, and creating a breathing plan for the route can help to remain focused and as stress-free as possible. When climbing bigger boulders, A bigger body might help, but the best person for a highball is surely the one who can keep a cool head and keep his confidence, even when fatigued 10 meters up a climb. This, of course, requires impeccable technique. Boulderers who do embark on this adventure in height do so consciously and know their bodies in and out. They know what they are capable of and take care that they can climb the route in the safest way possible by headpointing the route on rope several times and planting down as many pads as possible, maybe even using a net to catch them, just in case. Now when does highballing become free soloing? It's hard to define a perfect border between the two disciplines. What we do see is that a free solo climber doesn't use pads at the bottom of his climb, and most free solo routes are higher than 60 feet. This denial of even the most basic of securities, a soft landing, is what for me creates a difference between high balling and free soloing. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, indoor bouldering. Indoor bouldering differentiates itself from its outside version with primarily plastic, sometimes wooden and lately even stone screw-on holds. Now, these holds are puzzled and placed into different sequences on walls with varying degrees of overhang to create roots. Now, some of the advantages to bouldering indoor are of course the independence from weather. Although some of us sometimes have to endure rain on the way to our gym, once arrived the current state of weather shouldn't disturb your sending time. A constantly changing set of routes that incorporate all sorts of shapes and materials to climb on creates a chance to get a lot of experience on a lot of materials, and that without having to hike and explore giant patches of nature. It's all there in the same building and there's multiple toilets Indoor bouldering also isn't as rough on the skin as outdoor bouldering and it's perfect for training up weaknesses or working on specific goals such as building a stronger upper body. The availability of pull-up bars, hangboards, system walls and gym equipment makes this the perfect environment to get strong for outside sending. So, do we need a different grading system for indoor climbing? I don't think so. Most climbers feel that even if they pull off a 7a or v6 inside their home gym, they might not be able to do one in Fontainebleau. So for example, if I want to climb at the level of a 7a Fontainebleau climb inside my home gym, I'd probably have to opt for a 7b or 7c. Now, Varying weather conditions, the hike to the boulder, only having crash pads and not a huge bouldering mat, not having a great setup to warm up with and the difference between plastic holds and stone ones are just a few things that make outside bouldering that much harder. And that's that for today's episode. If you're a beginner in bouldering, I hope you understand the sport a bit better now. If you've been bouldering for a couple of years, I hopefully still was able to give you a new bit of information on any of the subjects discussed. Now, if you have any follow-up questions ideas for coming episodes or just want to say hi feel free to message me on instagram at bald bouldering for now i'd like to wish you a good weekend and if you're going bouldering anytime soon think about John Gill and use his strength and commitment in your own climbing. next episode will be on hardcore skincare